What's up, Exchange? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm, I'm Pastor Hal. I'm the uh, campus pastor at the Temple Terrace campus. Thank you. And uh, for those of you who don't know, if you go to USF, like we're literally right down the street from you. Uh, so if you don't, seven minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I knew it was three miles, but seven minutes down the road. So if you're looking for a church, uh, we definitely would, would be there. And on top of that, I am speaking this weekend in the main service and uh, about something I'm very excited about. And so if you haven't checked it out yet, you should check out uh, Grace Family Church this weekend. But today we're... we're here, here's the deal. I think so many times when, um, when we're kids especially, if we don't know why our parents are doing something or the reason behind it, it's really hard to learn from it. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like you ever had situations where your parents did something, you're like, I don't know. And, and I remember when I was a kid, my parents always responded very badly to me and my sister uh, yelling at each other, which I don't know why. Uh, we, I mean, we were bad at it. We definitely were the ones. Like my sister used to be the one in the car that would be like, stop looking at me. And I'm like, why? And then, then my dad would be like, stop looking at her. And I'm like, why can't I look at her? And I'm like, and then I, you know, and then I poke her. And, and basically, we, we learn very quickly when you're a kid. You learn how to make your, your sibling look neurotic, right? Like, you know how to do that. You know how to press their buttons. You know how to make them go off. You know how to do things. My sister would literally, like, get around the corner and, like, hit herself and go, ow, how hit me? And I would get in trouble. And, like, we, were, we would go back and forth very much. And so it got really bad in middle school, like really bad. And I'm sure that's the moment where some of you did. Like we were only 16 months apart. And so we were always uh, pissed off at each other. And so we were yelling at each other. And my dad decided, all right, he's going to think of like new ways of punishing us. And so what he would do is he actually made us, all right, I want you to go in the garage. You have to clean the garage while you hold hands. I was like, this is awful. And I, I was thinking the reason behind all of this is he wants us to be really good friends. Like he wants me and my sister to be good friends. I'm like, but this is impossible. And so he goes, the next time we like kept doing this, like, all right, he bought this like triple X shirt. He made us both get inside of it and like clean. And he goes, here's the deal. If you guys mess up again, I'm going to open the garage and everybody's going to see you holding hands. I'm like, that's to a middle schooler. Like if kids saw me holding my, I mean, we're not in Tennessee where that's normal. Like this is... <laughs> It's okay, I can say that I was born in Tennessee. And I did see my cousin ask my sister out at a family reunion, but that's a whole nother. <sighs> yeah, that was the moment I went to my dad. I said, thank you. Thank you for moving us out of here. Uh, but we're sitting there and we're thinking, all right, the point of this, the reason they're, they're punishing us is because they want us to become best friends. And then we realized very quickly after that, like, I'm like, dad, look, we're not going to be friends. He goes, no, I don't care about you guys being friends. I was like, that's new. He goes, I just want you to shut up and stop arguing. I was like, oh, we can do that. And so me and my sister, we literally got to the point where we would be yelling at each other. My parents would pull up. We were like, love you. And we'd just walk away. We'd start it back up, but we'd immediately do that. Why? Because we realized the purpose. We realized what my parents were trying to teach us was not that we had to get along at that point. My parents believed as we got older and more mature, we would like each other, and that's true. But they go, in that moment, we just don't want to hear you fight. Like, we don't want to hear what's going on. And once we understood that, we learned from that. And, and here's why I'm saying that, because I think many times when we go through trials, when we go through struggles, when we go through things, even, even in the idea of the Christian life, we go, what, what's the purpose of it? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian and go through this life? What does it mean to be a Christian and walk through this life? Is my goal just to be a good person? Is my goal to be, do more good things than bad things? Is my goal to just get the world around me to think that I'm a good person? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
And when we look at Romans 8, 29, it shows us exactly what God wants us to be and become. It says this. It says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So basically what God said is, hey, your, your goal is one, to become family, like Tay talked about last week. But second, once you become family, your goal is to become like Christ. Like our entire goal is to become as much like Jesus as we can. Like this isn't plan B, this is from the beginning. God said, my goal for all of humanity is to become more like my son. He goes, I want you to become more godly. I want you to act in the same way Jesus did. I want you to see things the same way Jesus saw them. I want you to have the same reactions to those things. In fact, when you look at spiritual maturity at its core is basically this, to become more like Christ. And this process has has a big churchy name. It's called sanctification. And it means to solely become sanctified or more holy. It's becoming like Christ. And what happens is as we start to follow after God and we read the Bible, the truth transforms us. It helps to change us. But what has happened more often is this, is God starts to use the unexpected things in our lives, the things that we don't want God to use to actually make us into something better. And we see that in Romans 8, 28, which is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It says this, it says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That does not say God just causes everything to work together for good. Because I see people post this all the time. Hey, it's okay, God works it. It's like, if you're not following after God, he doesn't work it for good. But here's what this also doesn't mean. People can take this and say, well, God then causes bad things to happen so he can work them for good. No. God doesn't cause bad things to happen. God doesn't cause things to happen to you so you can learn from that. Like I always say it this way, God didn't cause your grandma to die so you could learn from those things. Like that didn't happen. But I hear people say that all the time. Well, God just wanted them there or God just caused that to happen for a purpose. No, God didn't cause those bad things to happen on purpose. God says what? I can use those bad things for something good. But that's not what we wanna go through, right? We just want God to teach us in the good times. But what God seems to do is we tend to grow the most. Can we just be honest? We tend to grow the most in the tough times. Like we tend to grow the most in the trials. We tend to grow the most learning from our own mistakes. We tend to grow the most in those times. And so what God has an incredible ability to do is take the sin of the world and use it and use it to bring out something good. I mean, we're talking about a God who turned a crucifixion into a resurrection. Like we're talking about a God that took the most awful time in history when Jesus died and he turned it into the most incredible love story that we have ever seen. So if truthfully we want to become more like Christ, here is the tough part of that, is that we've got to learn how to become more like him in the tough times. And and I'll just be honest with you guys from the beginning, this is not like one of those like fun messages, like God loves you, here's the four happy hops to heaven. Like this is not that. This is very much the, like how God molds us and uses us in really the toughest times in our life. And, and, and we would love to say, oh, I don't want to go through those. Here's the truth. You're going to go through them no matter what, right? We're going to go through tough times no matter what. But the choice is, are we going to allow God to use them and mold us and develop us, or are we just going to allow them to happen? And so that's the, the, the truth. This isn't a fun message, but it is a necessary message. So here's the first thing that God does. God uses troubles to teach us to trust him. He uses the troubles, just the things in our life that that aren't good to trust him. It's kind of like this. How many of you guys have ever done a trust fall? 
Anybody in here? A couple of you have been crazy enough? We used to do this in youth groups because, I don't know, I, we didn't have anything really fun to do, so we would do dumb things. And so if you don't know what a trust fall is, basically you would stand on the edge of a stage and you would, they, they would make you do this. You put your hands like this and go like this. And this, the reason why, is, and I'll, I'll explain this. And so what you would have to do is there's people behind you in a line. They're all holding their hands out and you're supposed to fall back and they're going to catch you. And it's a trust fall. And the reason you put your hands like this is because what you naturally want to do when you fall is flail out and punch everyone that's trying to catch you. And so the thing about a trust fall is, is this, is that I've seen so many people do it before. Like I've seen them do it. Like I saw them fall, fall, fall. It came up to my turn. And guess what? Did I trust that they were going to catch me? I wasn't truly sure. I mean, mostly because I wasn't always the nicest person. I was high in sarcasm and I made fun of that person and that person didn't like me. And I'm going, I'm wondering to myself, like I've seen everybody else do it, but will they catch me? And here, here's why I say this. Because I, I hear people say this all the time, like, hey, you can trust God because you've seen what he's done in the past. That's true. That's true. But until you walk through a trouble with him, until you actually trust him, it's very hard to do it. Until you actually do it the first time. Yes, look, we can look in the past and see what God's done and know that he's going to continue to do it. But until you actually trust him in a trouble, it's very, very hard to know that he's going to come through. It's very hard to know that he's going to actually use this for something good. It's actually very hard to know that this trial is a good thing. In Romans 5, 3 to 4, this is Paul speaking. He says this. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And that's really what God wants to do. What God wants to do is he wants to turn your troubles into character. He wants to turn your troubles into character because God is far more interested in who you are than what you do. God cares so much more about what's in here than what's happening out here. Look, we can act like we have it all together. We can act like we care, but God wants a heart change. And here's what happens when you start to trust God. Here's what you stop saying. You stop saying, why is this happening to me? And here's what you start saying. You start saying, what am I supposed to learn? You stop saying, God, why is this happening to me? And you start go, God, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to learn here? Because every problem you go through can have a purpose. Not that God caused the problem. Once again, God didn't cause it. But God can use every single problem for a purpose. But we've got to trust him with it. And guys, I'm not saying that this is easy because you even see Jesus walking through this. The night before Jesus was taken to trial, the night before everything happened, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And while he's praying, he is so distressed by it that he's literally crying tears of blood. He's crying tears of blood because he doesn't want to die because he is also human. And in Mark 14, 36, we see Jesus' prayer to God, and this is what he says. He says, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Which, catch this, he starts off with this. What is he saying? He goes, God, you're in control. Right? He, he's saying from the beginning, God, I know you're in control. But then he says this, he goes, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Guys, it's not wrong to ask God to take it away. Absolutely. It's not wrong for God to, to ask God, hey, can you please just take this pain away? Can you take this problem away? But then the way that Jesus ends is he leaves it in God's hands. He says, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. See, Jesus knew that for the ultimate good to happen, the ultimate bad had to happen. 
Guys, in, in our lives, when what we feel like is the ultimate bad happening, God goes, I can turn that into something good, but you have to trust me. And we know this, trust is not built in the good times. In fact, we don't trust God a lot in the good times. We may act like we do, but when it's good, we're good. In fact, many times we don't think God's doing anything, we think it's us anyway. It tends to be the good times that we walk away from God. So how do we, how do we learn from the troubles in our life? And here's the first thing that you can do. Keep a spiritual journal. Keep a spiritual journal, not like a regular journal. Not like, oh, today Bobby looked at me. Like, that's not... A, a regular journal is a, it's the events that happened in your life. Here's what a spiritual journal is, what you learned. Why do you want to write down what you learned? Because we don't want to go through it again. Right? I mean, if we're just really honest in the room, some of us are going through the same problem over and over again because we refuse to learn the lesson. We refuse to learn what God has put us through. And so what do we do? We keep a spiritual journal. I keep a spiritual journal. Why? Because I don't want to have to go through it again. And when I go through something similar, I can look back and go, all right, this is the way God responded so I can trust him in this. So we keep a spiritual journal. Here's the second thing. Remember the reward. Remember the reward. Character building. What we end up having in heaven, what God's going to use it for. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this. It says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Guys, this life right now is just a preparation for eternity. Everything that we're going through right now, every uh, amount of problems that we're going through, God's going to use to further eternity. And God knows this, if he can develop your character now and turn you more into Jesus, what more can you do here on this earth to develop eternity? See, God uses our troubles. Now, God also uses something that we probably don't expect, and I bet a lot of us in this room have a bad theology of, and this is what it is, is God uses our temptations to obey him. And once again, I, I've got to clarify this. God does not tempt you. I've heard people say, oh, God's just tempting me. No, he's not. Satan tempts you. Satan tempts you because he wants to harass you. Satan tempts you because he wants you to sin. But how does God use temptation? Because he, he uses it as a moment where we get to choose whether or not to follow after him. Matthew 4.10, this is Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan. He says this, he says, get out, here, out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Why am I pointing out that Jesus was tempted? Because there's many of you in here right now that think, oh, I'm being tempted so much I must be doing something wrong. Or there's a lot of you in here that continue to be tempted and you feel guilty for being tempted. There's no need to feel guilty for being tempted. Jesus was tempted, yet he never sinned. Now, can you do things to lessen the temptation? Absolutely. Like, don't hang around that person. Don't do those things. Don't watch that stuff. Like, you can absolutely lessen your temptation. But I need you to understand, like, the older you get, doesn't mean you don't get tempted. Now, what you can do is the more you are tempted, the more you obey God, the better you get at doing it. But temptation is a part of life. And here's the other thing that tends to happen is people think to have, tend to think they have special temptation. And this is what Satan wants you to believe. Oh, nobody else has been tempted this way. Nobody else has gone through this. And so we feel like if we give in and it's okay. No, no, temptation is common. Everything you're tempted with, other people are tempted with. Your temptation doesn't make you special. It makes you human. And so when you're going through something, you think you're the only one dealing with it. If you just open your mouth and group, you'll find out you're not. In fact, that's the worst thing that Satan wants to happen is for you to bring it out into light because when you bring temptation out into light, it loses its power. 
See, but here's the deal. Every time we're tempted, this is what happens. We are choosing something. We are choosing, do I love God more or do I love this more? We're choosing, do I love my pride more or do I love God more? Or maybe this, do I, do I love my comfort more or do I love God more? And so we've got to deal with temptation. And how do we do this? And this sounds overly simplified, so let me explain it. How do we deal with temptation? Here's the first thing we do. We stay focused on the good. We stay focused on the good. And in Philippians 4, 8, it kind of explains this. It says, now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And here's what I, why I mean stay focused on the good. Because so many times in temptation, we stay focused on the temptation. And we're going, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to do that, right? I'm not going to look at porn. I'm not going to look at porn. I'm not going to look at porn. As you're sitting in front of the computer, what are you going to do? You're going to look at porn. I'm not going to go over to their house. I'm not going to go over to their house. Okay, I'm going to go over to their house. Right? Every time we focus on those things, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, stop trying to resist temptation, replace temptation. Instead of focusing on what it is you're tempted by, go read God's word. Go spend some time listening to worship music. Go, I, I mean, for me, I have verses memorized for each of the temptations I know the enemy loves to use against me. And I replace it. Because if I just think about my temptation, I'm going to give in to my temptation. If I focus on my temptation, that's where I'm going to go. You go where your focus is. So God says, hey, here's what you do with temptation. You don't try to resist it, you replace it. And here's the other thing that is incredibly important, especially in my life. Find a spiritual ally. I mean, some people call it accountability partner. I like the idea of ally because that's somebody that's fighting for you. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10 says it this way. It says, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Like, I, I have a spiritual ally, accountability partner, whatever you want to call it. It's Pastor Mike Ash. He's the campus pastor at the South Tampa campus. And the reason is, is because we're in very similar stages of life. We're, we're both pastors. We both are married. We both have kids. He's apparently good looking. I'm just messing with you guys. And so what do we do? We literally meet on a regular basis, and here's what we do. We ask these questions. All right, who is on your radar? Who are you paying attention to? Who's popping up out of nowhere? You're like, oh my gosh, you're married men and you're pastors. Yes. Marriage doesn't take care of lust, just in case you guys didn't know that. It, it doesn't. It's still there. In fact, it actually, sometimes it heightens it, because when you're mad at your wife, Satan's like, oh, this is a perfect time. So we purposely, we say it out loud. We go, this person is this, this person is this. I want you to pay attention to this. And we pay attention to those things. And on top of that, because we say it out loud, we pay attention to each other. Like, I don't know what it is about Easter Sunday, but there's some, I think there's sometimes there's women that show up that just want to make the pastor stumble. I'll just be honest with you. And at South Tampa, when I was down there, this one Easter Sunday, a lady came in who was, um, She was a trophy wife in South Tampa. Let me put it that way. And here's what she was wearing. She was wearing overalls that were right here and down with nothing underneath. And she made a beeline for Pastor Mike. And I was like, of course, of course. So I immediately just walk over and I'm just like, hey, Mike, what's up? And just talking to him. Why? Because I'm letting him know I see exactly what he's seeing and I'm paying attention to what he's doing. And we're good. 
we're good. He's not going to think about something. He's not going to think about, oh, I need to, maybe I can get her number or maybe I can look up our Facebook or anything like that. I'm like, no, we don't need to know your name. Bye. You can meet my wife though. She'd love to talk to you. Love to. If you put a shirt on, we can talk. It's all right. Why? Because I don't need to deal with that. He doesn't need to deal with that. But because we're spiritual allies, we pay attention to each other. We know we're dealing with the same thing. And here's the deal. After I, and this is going to come across wrong, but I need to explain it. After I ever, I, I talk about accountability and all that, I always get some messages from people y'all's age, especially guys, and like, hey, Pastor How, can you be my accountability partner? No. <laughs> and here's why. We're not in the same stage of life. I'm not dealing with the same thing you are. I'm not. I did. I'm not now. You don't deal with marriage stuff. Like, you're, you're not dealing with the same things a middle-aged man is, and if you are, then you need to leave. <laughs> but you're not. You're dealing with things. You need somebody in your stage of life that's going through the same things that also wants to follow after God in the same way. You need some people on your side that are watching those things. It's the same thing. Like, it's not easy to find that person, but when you find that person, it is absolutely priceless. See, we got to realize that here's what temptation does is if we learn how to deal with it, we, we get better at obeying God and it continues on and it's more, less of a struggle every single time. It's more of us turning towards God. How good is that? So God can use our temptation and he can turn it into a trust and obeying in him. Now, the last one, I, I got to be honest with you, is the toughest one. It's the one that you guys may even agree with me out loud, but in your heart, you're going to go, no, I'm not going to do that. It's this. God uses the sin of others to teach us to forgive. God uses the sin of others to teach us to forgive. We're going to be hurt. People will hurt you. It's impossible for this not to happen. If you want any sort of relationship, people will hurt you. And I'll be honest, this is the most difficult step in growth. And hear me on this. God hates it when people sin against you. God hates it when your heart hurts. It actually says, like, God hurts when you hurt. Like, God doesn't want you to feel that way. But when people hurt us, God also wants us to forgive them. Because God wants them to see him. I mean, it's the ultimate character builder. I mean, I look at Jesus. Jesus is dying. Like, Jesus is going to his death. People whip him. People make fun of him. People spit on him. People literally shoved a spear in his side while he's trying to die for our sins. And Jesus' response in Luke 23 was this. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can I just be honest for a second? If I'm Jesus up on the cross and people are making fun of me, I'm like, boom, gonorrhea. <laughs> like, I'm still going to die for your sins, but you're going to go through some pain. <laughs> but Jesus, with all the power of the world, he could call down at any moment, he could call down the angels from heaven. At any moment, he could leave that cross. At any moment, he could lash out and do whatever he wanted to do. But he chose to forgive. And this is not easy. And how do we do that? Well, I mean, here's the first thing, and is remember how much God has forgiven me. 
God's never going to ask you to forgive someone more than he's forgiven you. And you're like, oh, you don't understand. They did this big thing. Yeah, but how much have we done? I mean, throughout a lifetime. Ephesians 4.32 says this, says, instead be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And here's the second thing is remember that God is in control. I think this is hard, but when you look at the Bible, you see so many examples of this. An incredible one is a guy named Joseph. Joseph was one of many brothers, and he, he was the youngest, and he got special visions from God, and he was probably a little bit full of himself because he went to his brothers and said, well, in my dream, um, you bowed down to me, which is not what any brothers want to hear. But the brothers reacted kind of harshly. They said, let's kill him. And then one of the other brothers spoke up and he said, hey, why should we kill him when we can make money off of it and sell him into slavery? Great, guys. Sell him into slavery. He becomes a slave in a house. Works so hard, is, is so good at what he does, he becomes the head of the household. He's head of the household. The, the, the guy that owns the house, his wife comes on to David. I mean, Joseph. He comes on to, she comes on to him. And at this point, you can imagine being Joseph. Like, my, my, my brother sold me into slavery. God's not going to use me. This hot housewife is coming on to me. I might as well. What does he do? He runs away. Runs away. It says he streaked because she told, pulled his clothes off. Runs away. She is so mad, of course, because she was spurned. She goes to her husband and says, he tried to come on to me. Here's his clothes. So he gets thrown in jail. At this point, you got to imagine, Joseph is feeling, hey, all those dreams that I had, all those things that God said that was going to happen is not going to happen. And so he, he meets some guys in the jail. One of them was the, the, basically the taste tester for the king. So he would taste the wine so that the king wouldn't, like if it had poison in it, he would die, not the king. Awful job. <laughs> and he goes, hey, I, I interpret dreams. If you get your job back, tell the king about me, where he gets his job, he tells the king about him. He's able to interpret a dream. He ends up becoming second in command over the entire empire. Brothers. So here's what happened. He predicted there's going to be seven years of plenty, tons of crops. There's going to be seven years of less. So basically there's going to be a famine. So we need to make sure we store a ton of crops in the first seven years so we have enough for the last seven years. Pharaoh puts him ahead of all of that. Well, in the second seven years, guess who shows up to get crops? His brothers. Like, seriously, this is another one of those times where I'm glad I wasn't one of the characters in the Bible. But the brothers come up, and he basically ends up telling them who he is. And you can imagine as the brothers, they're thinking, all right, what is he going to do? At, at best, he's going to send us back without any food, and we're going to starve. Like, at worst, he's going to have us killed. And in Genesis 50, 20, this is what he says. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. This is the hardest part of spiritual maturity. But I believe this. Your greatest testimony usually comes out of your, the way you react to the greatest hurt in your life. In fact, I believe this. We are most like Christ when we suffer hurt so that others can see the love of God. So the question is, who do you need to forgive? But I also want to make sure you understand this. What does it mean to forgive? Because I, I hear this many times, and I need you to understand this. Forgiveness doesn't mean you just forget it. Okay? And actually, when you forgive, it doesn't mean it's going to be gone. I know some people that think, oh, I must not have forgiven them because I haven't forgot it. No, that doesn't happen right away. It may take time. 
Here's what forgiveness also isn't. Forgiveness doesn't mean they're allowed back in your life. And I need to explain this because I've seen this being abused many times. I've seen people abuse it, say, oh, no, no, you say you're a Christian, so you've got to let me back. I've seen guys that cheat on girlfriends and go, oh, you say you're a Christian, so you've got to let me back. No, you don't. It's not in the Bible. You forgive them, it doesn't mean you let them back. You can forgive many people, but it doesn't mean you don't put up boundaries. Like, God doesn't say, hey, you forgive that person, but just allow them to stab you again. That's not the way it works. God's like, you forgive them because forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about canceling the debt that they owe you. Forgiveness is not necessarily saying, I'm going to let them back in so they can run up another debt. But we know this, when we choose to forgive, when we actually forgive, we are the most like Christ. We are the most like him. I'm not saying this is easy at all. Because please hear me on this. None of this is easy. I'm not going, oh yeah, temptation, that's easy. I've already mastered that. No, that's not what I'm saying. These These are the hardest things we have to do, but these are the things that grow our character beyond anything else. And I know this, we're gonna go through troubles, we're gonna go through temptations, people are going to sin against us. But we have a choice. Are we gonna put it in God's hands and allow him to form our character? Are we gonna go through on our own, learn nothing, and it mean nothing? Wouldn't we rather our pains and our problems mean something more? About, what is it, two years ago, my, um, my sister, her kids went on this mountain hike in Georgia and they got all this quartz and jade and all these things, and they brought them back. And um, I'm explaining this so you don't think I'm a crappy uncle who gets bad gifts. And when they got back, they're like, oh man, how cool would it be to put them in a rock tumbler to make them smooth? And so my sister's like, hey, can you buy them a rock tumbler for Christmas? I'm like, yay, I'll be the cool uncle then. Um, So I bought the rock tumbler, and that's what this is if you've never seen one before. And we got the rock tumbler and we brought it in. We, we, uh, I, thought, I thought it was a children's toy. It's not a children's toy. And we got it for him and we, we, I start reading through the instructions. And I realized very quickly, I'm like, this is not what you think it is. Because the amount of time it takes to take a rock that's jagged and turn into something smooth is 30 days. Kids' attention spans are like a minute. And so when I'm reading through this, I'm like, this is not good. And so we, we put the rocks in there and, and we start tumbling it and all that kind of stuff. Five minutes later, the kids come back. Is it done yet? No, it's not done yet. Oh man, okay. They leave. Five minutes later, they come back. Is it done yet? I'm like, no. You got like 29 days, 23 hours and 50 minutes left. It's not done yet. Like it's gonna take some time. About 30 minutes later, all of the kids come back, all three of her kids, and they're like, is it done yet? I'm like, no. They're like, all right, can we just get the rocks? We'd rather play with the rocks than deal with it. And why? Why, why would they rather play with the rocks than, than deal with the process? Because they didn't realize the reward, how good it was. See, what this does is very simple. You put the rocks in, you put a little bit of water in, and then you put some sand in, and it turns, and through friction, it makes the rock smoother. And it takes time. And it takes a lot of friction and problems. In the same way, guys, our character building is a lifelong experience. And for us to become more like Christ, it takes friction. It takes molding. And the problem becomes this, is we wanna give up the moment we don't understand that the result is worth the pain that the result is worth the process. 
we guys have heard this so many times, like we're supposed to show the world Christ, right? We're supposed to show the world Christ. And we think, that, oh, that just means we're supposed to tell them about Christ. No. The way the world sees Christ is when they see it through you. So if we choose never to be transformed, the world will never see Christ. See, some of you are sitting here, you're like, God, I want you to transform my family. God's like, yes, I will transform your family, but it starts with you. God, I want to transform my job. I'll transform your job, but it starts with you. I want to transform my school, but it starts with you. God, I want you to transform Tampa. God's like, I will transform Tampa, but it starts with the church. See, God wants the world to see Christ, but it requires us to go through the process to get there. We've got to allow him to change our character. And we've got to remember, we've got to remember that what we're fighting for is not the comfort in this life, but the comfort in eternity. Not just for ourselves, for all around us. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you that you're a God that, um, that can turn the bad into good, that can turn the worst of our lives and, and make it into something better. God, I pray that you would remind us of that daily. God, I pray as we're going through the troubles in life, I pray that as we trust you in them, that we would realize and learn from them. God, I pray as we're going through temptation, that we would turn to you and obey you. God, I pray that we'd bring other people into our lives that would help us in that. And God, as people hurt us, God, I pray that you help us learn to forgive. God, I know that that's, that's the hardest thing, but God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, just the courage to forgive those that we need to forgive. God, not, not for them, but for us. Not, not so that we can feel better, but that you can grow our character in a way that shows the world you. God, thank you for using us. God, for, thank you for letting us be a part of your plan. God, I pray this week will be a week that we start to see the troubles and the pain and the problems in our life through your lens. God, we thank you so much. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.